what General Vagan has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Hi, everyone. This is John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And welcome back to the Battle of Britain, Part 2, as I make my case that the incredible air fight over Britain in the summer and fall of 1940, which continued into 1941, and the determination and courage of the British people, civilian and military, throughout all this, helped in a great way to preserve the cause of freedom in Europe. Had Britain fallen or capitulated to Hitler, their people would have been, through process, subjugated and retrained, and their resources would have been used to fuel the Nazi quest for power. British power in the air, as well as their navy, would have been erased. European allies would have lost all hope, and Britain would have been refortified by its captors to prevent a U.S. invasion. And the participation of Britain, and very likely its colonies as allies on all fronts, would have been greatly diminished. Its colonies may well have fought on, but their flow of materials from the home country would have been dwindling severely. The war would have lasted until U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on Berlin and Germany's manufacturing centers, provided Hitler didn't come up with the atomic bomb first. There's more fuel for debate there, but for now, I need to begin part two of our story as Britain's air war intensifies and German bombers begin to target the civilian population. Here are the five main phases of the Battle of Britain, as stated by the Royal Air Force Museum, granting the dates and overlapping of phases make pinpointing each phase to a date and time impossible. Phase 1, June 26th through July 16th, 1940. Nuisance raids, scattered small-scale probing attacks both day and night, armed reconnaissance and mine-laying sorties. From July 4th, the Channel Battles, Daylight raids against shipping. Phase 2, July 17th through August 12th. Daylight attacks on shipping intensified through this period. Increased attacks on ports and coastal airfields. Night raids on RAF and aircraft manufacturing. August 13th through September 6th. Eagle attack. The main assault. The attempt to destroy the RAF in southern England. 
including massive daylight attacks on RAF airfields, followed from August 19th by heavy night bombing of ports and industrial cities, including suburbs of London. September 7th through October 2nd, the Blitz commences main focus day and night attacks on London. October 3rd through 31, large-scale night bombing raids, mostly on London. Daylight attacks now confined to small-scale fighter-bomber raids, luring RAF fighters into dogfights. It should be mentioned that there is a sixth phase, and that would be the bombing of Britain's cities in November and December of 1940, and also from March through May of 1941, including the firebombing of a number of British cities. The first two phases I just mentioned ended with these losses for both sides. RAF, 115 fighters destroyed. Luftwaffe, 80 fighters destroyed. RAF, 71 pilots killed in action. 19 pilots wounded in action. 4 pilots missing in action. So where the RAF lost 71 pilots killed in action, Germany lost 201 airmen killed. On the 13th of August, 1940, the fighting intensified as Germany began their phase of what Hitler called the Eagle Attack. On August 8th, Air Marshal Dowding issued an order of the day to members of Flight Command. The Battle of Britain is about to begin, he said. Members of the Royal Air Force, the fate of generations lies in your hands. That day there was an increase in the overall pressure of Luftwaffe attacks, and most of the RAF command believed that the decisive battle had begun. Starting that morning, Stukas made a continuous onslaught upon a large convoy moving through the channel, while other bombers laid mines outside nearly every port on England's southern coast. Dogfights raged over Hampton, Sussex, Kent, and the channel, and by dusk the two sides had flown over a thousand sorties. That should give you some kind of idea as to how busy the skies were. When the victories had been totaled up by the RAF at the end of the day, they claimed to have shot down 24 of the Luftwaffe's bombers and 36 of its fighters, while the Germans said that they'd bagged 49 RAF fighters. Both sides were exaggerating. The Luftwaffe had lost 31 planes, the RAF, 19. It had been the heaviest day of combat thus far, but it would get worse. These eyewitness accounts, found in Eyewitness to History 1940, described the battle very vividly. This one's titled, The Few in Their Finest Hour. In the summer of 1940, 21-year-old pilot officer John Beard was a member of a squadron of hurricanes based near London. Waiting on the airfield while his plane is rearmed and refueled, Beard receives word of a large German attack force making its way up the Thames River towards London. The afternoon sun illuminates a cloudless blue sky as Beard and his fellow pilots lift their planes off the grass airstrip and climb to meet the enemy. The defenders level off at 15,000 feet, and wait for the attackers to appear. Minutes went by. Green fields and roads were now beneath us. I scanned the sky and the horizon for the first glimpse of the Germans. A new vector came through on the RT, radio telephone, and we swung round with the sun behind us. Swift on the heels of this, I heard Yellow flight leader call through the earphones. I looked quickly toward Yellow's position, and there they were. It was really a terrific sight, and quite beautiful. First they seemed just a cloud of light as the sun caught the many glistening chromium parts of their engines, their windshields, and the spin of their air-screw discs. Then, as our squadron hurtled nearer, the details stood out. I could see the bright yellow noses of Messerschmitt fighters sandwiching the bombers, and could even pick out some of the types. 
The sky seemed full of them, packed in layers thousands of feet deep. They came on steadily, wavering up and down along the horizon. Oh, golly, I thought, golly. And then any tension I had felt on the way suddenly left me. I was elated, but very calm. I leaned over and switched on my reflector sight, flicked the catch on the gun button from safe to fire, and lowered my seat till the circle and dot on the reflector sight shone darkly red in front of my eyes. The squadron leader's voice came through the earphones, giving tactical orders. We swung round in a great circle to attack on their beam, into the thick of them. Then, on the order, down we went. I took my hand from the throttle lever so as to get both hands on the stick, and my thumb played neatly across the gun button. You have to steady a fighter just as you have to steady a rifle before you fire it. My Merlin, the airplane's engine, screamed as I went down in a steeply banked dive onto the tail of a forward line of Henkels. I knew the air was full of aircraft flinging themselves about in all directions, but, hunched and snuggled down behind my sight, I was conscious only of the Henkel I had picked out. As the angle of my dive increased, the enemy machine loomed larger in the sight field, heaved toward the red dot, and then he was there. I had an instant's flash of amazement at the Henkel proceeding so regularly on its way with a fighter on its tail. Why doesn't the fool move, I thought, and actually caught myself flexing my muscles into the action I would have taken had I been he. When he was square across the sight, I pressed the button. There was a smooth trembling of my hurricane as the eight-gun squirt shot out. I gave him a two-second burst, and then another. Cordite fumes blew back into the cockpit, making an acrid mixture with the smell of hot oil and the air compressors. I saw my first burst go in, and, just as I was on top of him and turning away, I noticed a red glow inside the bomber. I turned tightly into position again, and now saw several short tongues of flame lick out along the fuselage. Then he went down in a spin, blanketed with smoke and with pieces flying off. I left him plummeting down, and horsing back on my stick, climbed up again for more. The sky was clearing, but ahead toward London I saw a small, tight formation of bombers completely encircled by a ring of Messerschmitts. They were still heading north. As I raced forward, three flights of Spitfires came zooming up from beneath them in a sort of Prince of Wales feathers maneuver. They burst through upward and outward, their guns going all the time. They must have each got one, for an instant later I saw the most extraordinary sight of eight German bombers and fighters diving earthward together in flames. I turned away again and streaked after some distant specks ahead. Diving down, I noticed that the running progress of the battle had brought me over London again. I could see the network of streets with the green space of Kensington Gardens. I had an instant's glimpse of the round pond, where I sailed boats when I was a child. In that moment, and as I was rapidly overhauling the Germans ahead, a Dornier 17 sped right across my line of flight, closely pursued by a hurricane. And behind the hurricane came two Messerschmitts. He was too intent to have seen them, and they had not seen me. They were coming slightly toward me. It was perfect. A kick at the rudder, and I swung in toward them, thumbed the gun button, and let them have it. The first burst was placed just the right distance ahead of the leading Messerschmitt. He ran slap into it, and he simply came to pieces in the air. His companion, with one of the speediest and most brilliant get-outs I've ever seen, went right away in a half-immelman turn. I missed him completely. He must almost have been hit by the pieces of the leader, but he got away. I handed to him. At that moment, some instinct made me glance up at my rearview mirror and spot two Messerschmitts closing in on my tail. Instantly, I hauled back on the stick and streaked upward. 
and just in time, for as I flicked into the climb, I saw Tracer Streaks pass beneath me. As I turned, I had a quick look round the cockpit. My fuel reserve was running out, and I had only about a second supply of ammunition left. I was certainly in no condition to take on two Messerschmitts, but they seemed no more eager than I was. Perhaps they were in the same position, for they turned away for home. I put my nose down, and did likewise. This eyewitness account was originally published in Mitchie, Alan A., and Walter Grebner, Their Finest Hour, 1941. On August 13th, Eagle Day officially began, with the Luftwaffe attacking targets in southern England from Southampton to the Thames Estuary, an attack line stretching 150 miles and utilizing hundreds of bombers and fighters. It was a purposeful show of power, trying to say, you can't stop us. We are mighty. We have limitless weapons of destruction, and this will go on until you surrender or your air force is completely destroyed. That was the message. Against Southampton alone, the Germans sent 150 bombers, comprised of Stukas and Junkers 88s, their fastest medium bomber, and a full fighter escort. That night, Goering was ecstatic to hear that six RAF airfields had been destroyed, plus other installations and dozens of planes on the ground. Small factories had been obliterated, and the port of Southampton had been rendered useless. 88 RAF fighters had been destroyed, according to his pilots. In truth, 13 RAF fighters had been shot down. 23 Luftwaffe bombers and 11 of their ME-109 fighters had been downed. What the Germans did not know was that they had totally destroyed a very valuable British radar station, Ventnor, on the Isle of Wight, leaving a 10-mile gap in the coastal radar chain. Had the Germans known this, they could have flown in squadrons of bombers and the Brits wouldn't have had a clue until the bombs started dropping. But the Germans missed this one, a very fortunate miss for the RAF. The first few weeks I don't remember much about it, really. I was uh, very concerned, very upset, uh, feeling rather annoyed with myself for having been shot down so decisively. And, and that I felt awful feeling, really. Terribly isolated, I couldn't see, I couldn't hear very well. I couldn't recognize people unless it was somebody very close to me. I, I felt so deflated, just as though um, half my life had been taken and the other half wasn't worth bothering with. It was, uh, I think, the worst period of my life. But uh, my friend, the chap I joined up with from school, was in Ward 3 at uh, East Grinstead. He'd been shot down flying a hurricane, and he was in Ward 3, and he'd, he'd heard that I'd been admitted to the hospital, and he'd sent a message along, could I go and, and see him? And as I opened the door in Ward 3, I saw what I can only describe now as the most horrifying thing that I've ever seen in my life, and that was uh, this chap who'd been badly burnt, really badly burnt. His hair was burned off, his eyebrows were burnt off, his eyelids were burnt off, you could just see staring eyes. His nose was burnt, there were just two holes in his face. His lips were badly burnt. And then when I looked down, his hands were burnt. And he, I looked down at his feet on the little trail and his feet were burnt. And uh, I got through the door on the crutches with a bit of a struggle. 
and this chap started propelling a wheelchair down the ward and halfway down he picked up the back a chair with, with his teeth and that's when I noticed how badly his lips were burnt and then he brought this chair down the ward and threw it alongside and he said have a seat old boy and I cried and I thought what have I to complain about and from then on everything fell into place that was a fight which I ever regretted because there was a friend of mine, uh, we became friends while in the squadron, and he said to me, John, I think that uh, I'm not coming back. I said, look, mate, don't, don't talk about this because you, 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 you put it in your mind. Don't talk about it. You will be back. And he had a watch and a wedding ring, and he took it off, and some, some other ring. She took it off and gave it to me, because I, I wasn't uh, not on standby. I was there just in case, you know, as a reserve. And uh, eventually, uh, the four planes, in which I flew uh, one of them, uh, were called up to standby and eventually scrambled. Anyway, he never came back. Two days after Eagle Day, on August 15th, the Germans released their largest offensive yet. 75% of all their dive bombers, every fighter in Air Fleets 2 and 3, and 50% of their bombers, the largest number of German planes ever used in a single operation, were loosed. The rest were held back for a second wave. Luftwaffe Air Fleet 5, commanded by General Stumpf, and positioned in Norway and Denmark, also took part in the all-out attack but he had no idea that Britain was using radar, and his force was tracked for at least an hour before they arrived, giving the RAF more than ample time to prepare a reception for them. The RAF positioned their planes up sun and waded into the incoming two full fleets of German bombers like angry hornets. One attacking force of 65 Henkels, escorted by ME-110s, was scattered to the wind and forced to drop its bombs far from its original targets. 50 Junkers 88 did manage to hit an ammunition dump on an airfield near Bridlington and to destroy 10 Whitley bombers at an RAF airfield. Stump ended up losing 16 Henkels, 6 Junker 88s, and 7 ME-110s. Not a single RAF plane was lost in the air. Stump's air force had been so badly mauled that his fleet was retired from the Battle of Britain after one more sortie. That was the bright spot for the day of August 15th. Stukas, Henkels, and Junkers 88s routinely shuttled back and forth from their bases on the French coast to drop bombs, while dogfights continued ceaselessly over all of southern Britain. There was never another day like August 15, 1940, over Britain. By the end of the day, the Luftwaffe had flown 1,760 sorties, 520 of them bomber raids, against the RAF and its installations. The Germans claimed 12 RAF stations put out of action and 99 RAF fighters downed. The British, in turn, reported huge damage inflicted upon the Luftwaffe. The British flew 974 sorties, resulting in 182 German planes downed. 
the real stats? Luftwaffe lost 75 planes, the RAF 34, less than half as many, with 17 dead pilots and 16 injured. I was lucky because I had the unique experience of uh, being one of the very few pilots during the Battle of Britain who had flown both the Hurricane and the Spitfire. They were both lovable uh, because in their different ways they, they were delightful aeroplanes. I tend to uh, give an example of the Bulldog and the Greyhound, the Hurricane being the Bulldog and the Greyhound being the Spitfire. Wonderful, tough working uh, animal and the other one's a sleek, fast uh, dog, but uh, I think their characteristics uh, were comparable to the, the dog world. Um, if anything, the hurricane was slightly easier. It wasn't as fast and didn't have the rate of climb, but um, during the actual Battle of Britain itself, uh, what really evolved was that the hurricanes would attack the German uh, bomber formations and the Spitfires because of their extra capability of climbing they would go up and attack the uh, German fighter escorts but uh, in the earlier stages I found that we were getting involved both with bombers and fighters when we were flying hurricanes. I could see the rest of this formation still up above and I thought right well I'll climb back up and see if I can pick up a straggler uh, but before I did that, a target presented itself because right down across my front came a single 109. And I um, rolled in after this um, Messerschmitt, half thinking for the moment it might be a Spitfire because it was so unusual to see a single Messerschmitt by itself. And either whether he'd been hit or not, I don't know. He wasn't showing any smoke. He was travelling fairly fast, just diving towards the sea as if he was getting the hell out of it and going home, which is probably just what he was doing. Anyway, I got onto his tail, fired a long burst, and he slowed up, and then he rolled very violently up to the right. Um, as he came out of his roll, I was back on his tail, close in for another burst, uh, when I could see that his um, undercarriage was coming down, and he was also streaming grey smoke, might have been coolant. Um, we were down to about 1,200 feet then over, over the fields of Dorset, uh, the Purbeck Hills, and um, uh, he started to sideslip fairly violently. Uh, and he did another roll, this time with his wheels down, and then went, did a diving dirt turn down towards the ground. And I thought, well, either he's going to go in or he's actually aiming for a forced landing. And I held off and he, he went round a field, lost speed, sideslipped quite sharply, and he was obviously a very capable pilot. And eventually, um, uh, he, he went in to land on this field. And I was at about 20,000 feet, and I suddenly saw this lone Dornier. How he was on his own, I'll never know, but he was off home. So I went after him. Now, the drill against the Dornier was he had a dustbin rear gunner, the dustbin hanging down below the fuse like, And you had to fix him first, and then close in for the aircraft. And this I did cleverly, of course. Uh, I could see him shooting at me, and I, I closed in and gave him a burst and shut him up. At least I thought I had. I never know to this day whether I did or I didn't, or whether someone took his place. Because as I closed right in on him uh, and started shooting, I suddenly saw uh, his rear gunner sh shooting back at me with little red sparks you can see. I didn't pay much attention to it. I just thought I'd, hey, he would stop another one and carried on firing for quite a while, quite a long burst, when suddenly I was covered in smoke. Uh, and to my horror, a hole appeared. I was leaning forward, of course, as one did to the gun sight, and a hole appeared in this thing in front of my face. 
And I thought, good God, I must be dead or something. No blood, no nothing. Uh, but I'm covered in smoke. I thought I was on fire. So I uh, whipped the hood back and undid my straps and started to get out. I, by this time I'd broken away and was going downhill. And uh, I was halfway out of the cockpit when I suddenly saw the smoke was coming from the top of the engine, through the engine cowl in, which is where the glycol pipe is, the coolant pipe. I thought. And it was a, a really uh, browny colour. It wasn't black, black smoke. And I could, I could smell it too. It was glycol. So I got back in and strapped myself in again, left the hood open, and uh, still went rapidly downhill in case somebody was following me, and then started looking for a field, and I found a field to land in, and I uh, waited until uh, I'd found my field and got uh, down to about a thousand feet, dropped the undercarriage, and did a forced landing uh, in this field, and no, no trouble at all. I hadn't even got out of the cockpit before an army jeep with a, a young subaltern and two uh, soldiers with <laughs> fixed bayonets roaring through the gate in a jeep. And uh, as soon as they saw it was one of ours, they, uh, they changed their attitude. And uh, I got a screwdriver from uh, one of the soldiers and uh, we took the top off and there it was. A bullet had gone through uh, the glycol pipe, the top of the header, and uh, there was glycol all over the place. And I was flying by myself a thousand or a couple of thousand feet higher than the rest of the squadron and slightly behind, weaving like mad looking right, left, centre, up, down, mostly back, when suddenly I, out of the corner of my eye, saw a flash over my left wrist. And the next moment, of course, the cockpit was full of flames, the heat was enormous, and I'd done two things absolutely instinctively. My left hand had gone to the handle of the hood, my right hand had gone to the pin of my harness, and I was pulling with both hands. And the next moment I was out in the open air. Uh, I'd made no attempt to jump out of that aircraft, but of course I was straining back from the, the flames and the heat. And what I think had happened was I was doing a left-hand turn and my aircraft had gone on turning over on its back and I'd just fallen out. Anyway, there, there I was, falling away, and I did actually remember my parachute drill which was, of course, to wait before pulling the ripcord for two or three seconds, and I pulled it, and there was a jerk, and there I was, floating down with, under a marvellous canopy, and about a couple of miles inland, I could look down, see the land, so I thought, well, at least I won't be going into the sea. Something seemed to have happened to my face. There were sort of bits of skin flapping flapping around my eyes, and my mouth felt very uncomfortable. Of course, I'd been burned. Well, very shortly after that, I was over the coast, and a few minutes later, I was a mile out to sea, and a few minutes after that, I was two miles out to sea. Well, the sea gradually approached, and I wasn't a bit worried, because I was coming down, going to splash down, only a couple of hundred yards from a little fishing trawler. Well, the splash happened, and I got rid of my harness, and looked round, and there was the trawler, and I waved like mad, and it eventually arrived, and they hauled me on board. England may have felt very alone during those hard months, in which, at times, it seemed as if all was lost. One surprising fact that many people aren't aware of is that about 20% of pilots who took part in the battle were from non-British countries. 
the Royal Air Force Roll of Honor for the Battle of Britain recognizes 595 non-British pilots out of 3,000 as flying at least one authorized operational sortie with an eligible unit of the RAF, or Fleet Air Arm, between July 10th and October 31st, 1940. These included 145 Poles, 127 New Zealanders, 112 Canadians, 88 Czechoslovaks, 10 Irish, 32 Australians, 28 Belgians, 25 South Africans, 13 French, 9 Americans, 3 Southern Rhodesians, and individuals from Jamaica, Barbados, and Newfoundland. Altogether, in the fighter battles, the bombing raids, and the various patrols flown between July 10th and October 31st, 1940, by the Royal Air Force, 1,495 aircrew were killed, of whom 449 were fighter pilots, 718 aircrew from Bomber Command, and 280 from Coastal Command. Among those killed were 47 airmen from Canada, 24 from Australia, 17 from South Africa, 30 from Poland, 20 from Czechoslovakia, and 6 from Belgium. 47 New Zealanders lost their lives, including 15 fighter pilots, 24 bomber, and 8 coastal air crew. The names of these Allied and Commonwealth airmen are inscribed in the memorial book that rests in the Battle of Britain Chapel in Westminster Abbey. In the chapel is a stained glass window which contains the badges of the fighter squadrons which operated during the battle and the flags of the nations to which the pilots and aircrew belonged. A little more on that window in the Battle of Britain Chapel, still to come. These pilots, some of whom had to flee their home countries because of German invasions, fought with distinction. The number 303 Polish fighter squadron, for example, was possibly the highest scoring of the Hurricane squadrons. Had it not been for the magnificent material contributed by the Polish squadrons and their unsurpassed gallantry, wrote Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, head of RAF Fighter Command, I hesitate to say that the outcome of the battle would have been the same. The RAF and Fleet Air Arm had included personnel from outside the United Kingdom from before the beginning of the Second World War, and many served in the Battle of Britain in the summer of 1940. Many of these volunteers were British subjects, thus citizens, coming from territories that made up part of the British Empire. Additionally, a significant part was made up of refugees and exiles from German-occupied Europe and American emigrants. All pilots, regardless of nationality, who flew with the British units during the battle, are known collectively, after a phrase coined by Winston Churchill, as the few. The only ones I didn't mention from above were Free France, from which 13 to 14 pilots flew for the RAF. The United States included 9 to 11 pilots. When the war began, about 450 Australian pilots were serving in the RAF. Australia was among the first countries to declare war on Germany, and the Royal Australian Air Force, the RAAF, was among the world's oldest air forces, having been formed in 1921. A predecessor, the Australian Flying Corps, served during the First World War in the Middle East and Europe, but was disbanded in 1919. A total of 37,000 aircrew were trained in Australia during 1939 through 1945. More than 30 Australians served in RAF Fighter Command during the battle. The highest scoring Australian ace of the battle was Flight Lieutenant Pat Hughes of No. 234 Squadron RAF, who claimed 14 kills before his death on September 7, 1940. 
At the start of the war, the small Caribbean island of Barbados was a British crown colony. Aubrey Sinbad de Lisle Innes was the sole Barbadian to serve as a pilot during the Battle of Britain. Innes was born in Barbados to a British family and joined the RAF in 1939. During the battle, he flew a Bristol Blenheim IF night fighter with number 236 Squadron RAF and was responsible for shooting down a Henkel HE 111 in September of 1940. Innes, who became an ace during his subsequent war service, survived the conflict and retired from the RAF in 1957. The RAF monument lists Innes as Bahan, B A J A N, while the RAF Roll of Honor lists him as British. We'll return with our Heroes Roll Call right after these sponsor messages. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And now back to the Battle of Britain, Part 2. At the time Belgium was invaded, in May of 1940, it had only a small air force known as the Aeronautique Militaire. Although it played little role during the campaign in Belgium, a number of Belgian pilots succeeded in reaching Britain in the aftermath of the surrender. A significant number of Belgians were also undergoing flight training in France, and, despite the reluctance of the Belgian government in Bordeaux, 124 of them reached Britain by August of 1940, but few were able to participate in the Battle of Britain. As of December 2014, the RAF officially recognizes 30 Belgians as having participated in the Battle of Britain, of whom 18 did not survive the war, although the Battle of Britain monument, constructed in 2005, includes 28. At the time of the battle, Belgian pilots were mixed into British units and did not have their own squadrons. By the summer of 1940, Belgians made up around half of No. 609 Squadron RAF, a unit flying Spitfire fighters. Numbers 235 and 236 squadrons of RAF Coastal Command also had disproportionate numbers of Belgian pilots at 8 and 6, respectively. Altogether, Belgium provided the largest contingent of pilots during the Battle of Britain that were not from Eastern Europe or the Commonwealth. During the course of the battle, Belgian pilots were responsible for shooting down 21 German aircraft. Between 7 and 10 Belgians were killed. In 1942, two all-Belgian squadrons were formed and, in total, 1,200 Belgians had served in the RAF during the course of the war. As far as Canada goes, many Canadians served in the fighter squadrons which repulsed the Luftwaffe in the summer of 1940. In fact, Although the RAF only recognizes 83 Canadian pilots as flying on fighter operations during the Battle of Britain, the RCAF claims the actual figure was over 100, and that of those 23 who died and 30 more who were killed later in the war. Much of this confusion can be attributed to the fact that apart from RCAF members flying in RCAF units, there were those Royal Canadian Air Force members who were in RAF units as well as Canadians who were members of the RAF not the RCAF. Another 200 Canadian pilots fought with the RAF Bomber Command and RAF Coastal Command during the period, and approximately 2,000 Canadians served as ground crew. 
Of these, 26 were in number one squadron, RCAF, flying hurricanes. The squadron arrived in Britain soon after Dunkirk, with 27 officers and 314 ground staff. This squadron would later be renumbered as number 401, City of Westmount Squadron, RCAF. It was the only fighter unit from the Commonwealth Air Forces to see combat in the Battle of Britain. Canadians also shared in repulsing the Luftwaffe's last major daylight attack on September 27th. The RCAF attacked the first wave of enemy bombers. Seven aircraft were claimed destroyed, one probably destroyed, and seven were damaged. The top Canadian scorer during that battle was Flight Lieutenant Hamilton Upton of No. 43 Squadron, Royal Air Force, who claimed 10.25 aircraft shot down. Heroes from Czechoslovakia, who participated in the Battle of Britain. Many of the Czechoslovak pilots had fled to France after Hitler's occupation of their country in March of 1939, and had fought in the short Armée de la Air in the Battle of France, gaining important combat experience. The rapid fall of France caused Czechoslovak soldiers and airmen to leave for Britain, where they established their own squadrons. Nearly 90 Czechoslovak pilots would fly in the Battle of Britain, with number 310 and number 312 Czechoslovak squadrons, RAF, formed in the summer of 1940 and operational during the battle. Some Czechs also served in other fighter command squadrons. Both Czechoslovak squadrons were equipped with hurricanes. Czechoslovak fighters earned a reputation for aggressive aerial combat and for skills and bravery. Together with Czechoslovak pilots serving in other RAF units, a total of 86 to 84 Czechs and two Slovaks served, claiming almost 60 air kills. Nine pilots were killed. The top Czechoslovak ace was Sergeant Joseph Frantisek, flying with number 303 Polish Squadron, who claimed 17 confirmed kills, making him the highest-scoring non-British pilot in the Battle of Britain. As far as France goes, French volunteers and free French forces served in 245 and 615 squadron. Thirteen are recognized in the Battle of Britain Roll of Honor. Pilots of the free French forces also flew with the RAF 100 Bomber Support Group between 1943 and 1945. From Ireland, Brendan Paddy Finucane, an Irish ace who is believed to have shot down four aircraft during the Battle of Britain and as many as 32 by his death in 1942. A little history for you on Ireland. The Irish Free State, officially called Ireland, or in Gaelic, Ire, from 1937, seceded from the British rule in 1922 after a two-year war of independence. Relations between the two countries were still strained in 1940. Although technically a British dominion, Ireland remained neutral for the duration of the Second World War. Many individual Irish citizens did enlist in the British military, however, and ten pilots from the country fought in the RAF during the Battle of Britain, a fact that very few people know. One of them, Brendan Paddy Finucane, became an ace who would claim a total of 32 enemy aircraft before he was killed in 1942. The eldest of five children, Finucane grew up in County Dublin, where his father had taken part in the Easter Rising of 1916. He and his family moved to England in 1936, and he enlisted in the Royal Air Force at age 17. He became operational in July of 1940 and downed his first BF-109 on August 12th, claiming a second the following day. During a 51-day period in 1941, Finucane claimed 16 Messerschmitt BF-109 fighters shot down while he was flying with an Australian squadron. Finucane became the youngest wing commander in the RAF, a rank he received at 21. He was shot down on July 15th, 
1942. As of March 2023, this year, the world's last verified surviving Battle of Britain pilot is Group Captain John Hemingway, who was born in Dublin and returned to settle in Ireland in 2011. A flying officer during the battle, he damaged a BF-109 and was himself twice shot down during that period. The most prominent New Zealander in the battle was Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, a high-scoring air ace in the First World War and a member of the RAF since its creation. At the time, he was air officer commanding No. 11 Group, defending London and southeast England. The RAF recognizes 135 fighter command aircrew from New Zealand as having served in the battle. Several New Zealanders became high scorers, including pilot officer Colin Falkland Gray, No. 54 Squadron, with 14 claims. Flying officer Brian Carberry, No. 603 Squadron, with 14 claims, and pilot officer Alan Christopher Deere, No. 54 Squadron, with 12 claims. Carberry shot down the first German aircraft over British territory since 1918 and was also one of two ace-in-a-day pilots of the battle. By mid-1940, some 35,000 Polish airmen, soldiers, and sailors had made their way to Britain, making up the largest foreign military force in the country after the French as well as making it the largest Polish army ever formed abroad. Of these, some 8,500 were airmen. Many were members of the Polish Air Force, which had fought the Luftwaffe. However, the Air Ministry and the RAF underestimated their potential value in fighting against the Luftwaffe, as they felt that the Polish defeat on home soil was due to incompetence and lack of training, one of the biggest mistakes the RAF ever made. Most of the Poles were initially posted either to bomber squadrons or the RAF Volunteer Reserve. The Poles also faced a huge language problem. The fact that the majority of Poles could not speak English made them unreliable in battle in the eyes of British commanders. One of the commanders stated that he would not have people crashing around the sky until they understood what they're told to do. The Poles had to go through English language training before the majority of them could see action. Finally, in July of 1940, the RAF announced that it would form two Polish fighter squadrons, number 302 Squadron and number 303, which were composed of Polish pilots and ground crews, although their flight commanders and commanding officers were British. The two fighter squadrons went into action in August with 89 Polish pilots. Now, those Polish pilots were among the most experienced in the battle because they'd already fought the Luftwaffe. Most had hundreds of hours of pre-war flying experience and had fought in the invasion of Poland or the Battle of France. They had been well-trained in formation flying and had learned from combat experience to fire from close range. By comparison, one Polish pilot referred to the close formation flying and set-piece attacks practiced in the RAF as simply suicidal. The 147 Polish pilots claimed 201 aircraft shot down. Number 303 Squadron claimed the highest number of kills, 126, of any hurricane squadron engaged in the Battle of Britain. With their combat experience, Polish pilots would have known that the quickest and most efficient way to destroy an enemy aircraft was to fire from close range, which often surprised their British counterparts. After firing a brief opening burst at 150 to 200 yards, just to get on the enemy's nerves, the Poles would close to almost point-blank range. That was where they did their real work. When they go tearing into enemy bombers and fighters, they get so close you would think they were going to collide, one man said. In all, 30 Polish airmen were killed during the battle. The close-range tactics used by the Poles led to suggestions of recklessness, but there is little evidence for this view. 
For example, the death rate in number 303 squadron was lower than the average rate for other RAF squadrons, despite the squadron having been the highest scoring hurricane squadron during the battle. The Polish War Memorial on the outskirts of RAF Northolt was dedicated in 1948 as a commemoration of the Polish contribution to Allied arms. And then there was the contribution from South Africa. One of RAF's leading aces and one of the highest scoring pilots during the Battle of Britain was Adolf Sailor Milan, an RAF pilot since 1936 who led Number 74 Squadron at the height of the Battle of Britain. Under his leadership, Number 74 became one of RAF's best units. Milan claimed his first two victories over Dunkirk on May 21, 1940, and had claimed five more by the time the battle started in earnest. Between July 19th and October 22nd, he shot down six German aircraft. His Ten Rules for Air Fighting were printed and pinned up in crew rooms all over Fighter Command. He was part of a group of about 25 pilots from South Africa that took part in the battle, eight or nine of whom, depending on sources, died during the battle. The song Aces in Exile from the 2010 album Coat of Arms by Swedish power metal band Sabaton is about foreign pilots serving in the Battle of Britain. The song specifically references the number 303 Polish, number 310 Czechoslovakian, and number 401 Canadian squadrons. You may think I've gone a little heavy on foreign-born pilots who served for the RAF, but I think it's important to mention that these men served as volunteers, and they were there for one reason, to fight and stop the German onslaught, and each in their own way, answer to the cause of freedom. There are days which will live in infamy. Americans will certainly always remember one such day, December 7, 1941, the day of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. That was the day that brought the United States into World War II. The British have such a day as well, September 7, 1940. For months, Germany had been bombing England, destroying RAF bases, munitions factories, ports, ships, anything which could be considered a military target. But on September 7th, Germany sent squadron after squadron of bombers across the Channel and up the Thames River. Their destination? London. Air Chief Marshal Dowding and his aide pilot officer Wright, who had just entered Dowding's office to tell him, It looks like the big one's coming, sir. Walked to the balcony of the operations room and looked down at the great map of the Channel. That room and the great map and the operators surrounding the scene were faithfully portrayed in Battle of Britain, the movie I spoke of numerous times in Part 1, and I only mention it now in case you need a visual. Picture, if you will, blue-shirted girls of the WAAF wearing headphones and pushing blocks across the huge chart with rods designed for that purpose. Each block represents a flight of planes, either enemy or RAF. Both are differentiated by color. The positions of the blocks are changing quickly as new information arrives from outlier stations. From the way the blocks are being pushed across the table, and from the increasing number of them that are being introduced onto the board, it looked as if a huge roulette game were in progress. Dowding could see that more than 500 German fighters and 250 German bombers were coming across the channel. Notice that the radar is already getting a little better than just a few months ago, and can now differentiate types, while even more bombers and fighters were assembling behind Calais. Dowding could see that number 11 group was already in the air. Then, as it progressed, the German groups, for the first time, did not split up as they always had before 
but continued up the Thames in a solid wave. Anti-aircraft fire opened up on the banks of the Thames, but the bombers were flying above and out of range, and the white puffs of exploding shrapnel seemed sadly to watchers as betokening a parade instead of an invasion. The first target to be hit was the Woolrich Arsenal on the south bank of the Thames, where shells were produced for the Army and bombs for the RAF. That took a direct hit and exploded high into the air continuously, with rockets heading in all directions. Then the London docks were demolished. Then came the Victoria Dock, the West Indian Dock, and the Commercial Docks. London's East End began taking hits. Silvertown, Canningtown, Limehouse, Barking, Tower Bridge, Millwall, all were bombed and buried in rubble. The pounding could be watched and heard all over London. In minutes there were over 400 civilians dead and thousands more burned and injured. Women and babies screamed amidst the horror. As the daylight of September 7th gave way to evening, people could see a red glow of London's east end as the city self-incinerated and the glow of the fires guided more waves of German bombers over the target. In the continuous rage which occurred over the next seven days, tens of thousands of Londoners died. Goering was lapping it up and sending notes of congratulations to everyone connected with the effort. Now he wanted a final coup de grace for London. The losses that Luftwaffe was suffering could barely suppress his happiness. In the Luftwaffe, both fighter and bomber squadrons were expressing concern over mounting losses. Bomber squadrons were being hit by units that Goering had claimed wiped out. But he forged ahead. Sunday, September 15th, saw 400 Luftwaffe bombers and 700 fighters fill the sky over Britain. But their entry into British airspace was different this time. This time they met opposition the moment they reached the coast, and from then on it never let up. British Fighter Command had sent up its entire fighting force, 24 squadrons, and they were unleashing holy hell on the Luftwaffe. The fighting continued all day, until the sky was crisscrossed by so many vapor trails, it was more white than blue. In the last engagement of the day, a pilot in a hurricane, Sergeant R.T. Holmes, turned his machine guns on two Dorniers over London's West End, and sent them both crashing to the ground. When the day's totals came in, Fifty-six German aircraft had been destroyed. Twenty to thirty had limped back home with severely wounded crews. And twenty ME-109s had crashed into the channel having run out of gas. So seventy German planes never made it home. Twenty-six RAF planes had been lost. On September 17th, Hitler called a halt to Operation Sea Lion, which meant a halt to the plans for invasion. And with regard to the East End home of London's poorest, and closest to the docks and manufacturing centers. They suffered terribly, and in many ways made wealthier Londoners feel the guilt of their plight. I came across a picture of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth outside inspecting the wreckage caused when a German aerial bomb hit the north side of Buckingham Palace. The Queen looked at one of the press and said, "'I'm glad we've been bombed. It makes me feel I can look East End in the face.' By October, Goering resorted to night-only raids, much harder to defend and harder to pick up on radar. He targeted and destroyed a larger swath of London and flattened Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, and Bristol as they all came under attack. The bombs dropping now 
were in part incendiary bombs designed to create fires. Airways, um, planes, and bombs. The first thing I, I knew of really bad was the guns firing. Pom-pom guns used to go near us and um, all of a sudden I heard a great big whoosh and uh, the wall and all the glass came in and fell on me and my brother were in bed. It's an iron bed. My sister had been in bed. She would have been killed and the neighbours rushed in, grabbed me from the bed, my brother, and I swore at Hitler. The children then didn't swear. Every day you'd, my mother used to say, please God don't let it be me, but God help the poor soul it is. So every day was, you didn't know what was going to happen, really and truly. I was standing there one night, and it, there was the air raid uh, siren, the door already gone, but I was standing looking out, and the warden was trying to keep me in, but I couldn't help seeing it, an incendiary bomb dropped on the corner opposite, and you saw all the bricks coming apart. And, um, I thought, obviously, the building would be flattened the next day. When we came out, it had gone together. And they said, this happens, if an explosion. The, it does that, but then it just goes back into place. If it doesn't fall, they join up again. And I've never seen anything like that in my life, or never since either. Then December the 8th, um, I said goodbye to my friend. Good night, Mary, good night. Her and 53 other people went to it in a shelter direct hit. She was killed. And so were all the others, they're blown to bits. And I went to look, I thought I've got to say goodbye. Um, they buried them in cardboard coffins and they brought the charabangs, which we now call coaches, put them in there with a union jack, no flowers, and took them away. And I, at the time I thought, I wonder which coffee Mary's in. When the bombs started coming down, we did go to the shelter in the building, but there was no windows, and it was dark in there, and you could hear every sound. It, nothing, you know, so we started going to the station, and that's where they had the uh, tragedy at Bethna Green Underground. And uh, on that night we went, and the gates were locked, and my mother was telling us off because we made her late for the shelter, so she thought. But it was because of the uh, tragedy, so it was fated, you know, that we'd be late that night. The more they bombed us, they couldn't have done a worse thing, the more they bombed us, the more we were determined, we're going to get you, you ain't going to get us. You, you, you try it on. So uh, that's how it was. On November 14th, the area of Coventry, long a place of cherished British history and legend, was firebombed. The Cathedral of Coventry was demolished. The one German plane that was lost was brought down by ground fire. Then came Germany's new invention, parachute mines, which wreaked havoc throughout Britain. On December 29th, the Luftwaffe launched one of their largest raids ever, on the heart of the capital, full of ancient churches, almost all of which were destroyed by the fire caused by the incendiary bombs. The ancient city, as in 1666, was now overcome by fire. Yesterday afternoon, it seems days ago now, I drove down to the east end of London, the East India Dock Road, Commercial Road, through Silvertown, down to the mouth of the Thames Estuary. It was a quiet and almost pleasant trip, those streets running between rows of working-class houses, 
with the cranes, the docks, the ships, and the oil tanks off on the right. We crossed the river and drove up on a little plateau which gave us a view from the mouth of the Thames to London. And then an air raid siren called Weeping Willie by the men who tend it began its uneven scream. Down in the coast, the white puff balls of anti-aircraft fire began to appear against the steel blue sky. The first flight of German bombers were coming up the river to start the 12-hour attack against London. They were high and not very numerous. The hurricanes and spitfires were already in the air, climbing for altitude above the nearby aerodrome. The fight moved inland and out of sight. Things were relatively quiet for about half an hour. Then the British fighters returned. And five minutes later, the German bombers flying in V formation began pouring in. The anti-aircraft fire was good. Sometimes it seemed to burst right on the nose of the leading machines, but still they came on. On the aerodrome, ground crews swarmed over those British fighters, fitting ammunition belts and pouring in gasoline. As soon as one fighter was ready, it took the air, and there was no waiting for flight leaders or formations. The Germans were already coming back, down the river heading for France. Up toward London, we could see billows of smoke fanning out above the river. And over our heads, those British fighters climbing almost straight up, trying to intercept the bombers before they got away. It went on for over two hours. And then, the all clear. We went down to a nearby pub for dinner. Children were already organizing the hunt for bits of shrapnel. Under some bushes beside the road, there was a baker's cart. Two boys, still sobbing, were trying to get a quivering bay mare back between the shafts. The lady who ran the pub told us that these raids were bad for the chickens, the dogs, and the horses. A toothless old man of nearly 70 came in and asked for a pint of mild and bitter, confided that he'd always, all his life, gone to bed at 8 o'clock, and found now the three pints of beer made him drowsy-like, so he could sleep through any air raid. Before eight, the siren sounded again. We went back to a haystack near the aerodrome. The fires up the river had turned the moon blood red. The smoke had drifted down till it formed a canopy over the tent. The guns were working all around us. The burst looking like fireflies in a southern summer night. The drums were sending in two or three planes at a time, sometimes only one, in relays. They would pass overhead. The guns and lights would follow them. And in about five minutes, we could hear the hollow grunt of the bomb. Huge pear-shaped bursts of flame would rise up into the smoke and disappear. The world was upside down. Vincent Sheehan lay on one side of me and cursed in five languages. When he was a part in the firing, he'd talk about the war in Spain. Ben Robertson of CM lay on the other side and kept saying over and over in that slow South Carolina drawl, London is burning. London is burning. That was the voice of the famous CBS correspondent, Edward R. Murrow, who covered a lot of the Battle of Britain. From July to September, the Luftwaffe's loss records indicate the loss of 1,636 aircraft, 1,184 to enemy action. This represented 47% of the initial strength of single-engine fighters, 66% of twin-engine fighters, and 45% of their bombers. This indicates the Germans were running out of air crew as well as aircraft. 
Throughout the battle, the Germans greatly underestimated the size of the RAF and the scale of British aircraft production. Across the Channel, the Air Intelligence Division of the Air Ministry consistently overestimated the size of the German air enemy and the productive capacity of the German aviation industry. As the battle was fought, both sides exaggerated the losses inflicted on the other by an equally large margin. The intelligence picture formed before the battle encouraged the Luftwaffe to believe that such losses pushed fighter command to the very edge of defeat. While the exaggerated picture of German air strength persuaded the RAF that the threat it faced was larger and more dangerous than was really the case. This led the British to the conclusion that another fortnight of attacks on airfields might force fighter command to withdraw their squadrons from the south of England. The German misconception, on the other hand, encouraged first complacency, then strategic misjudgment. The shift of targets from air bases to industry and communications was taken because it was assumed that fighter command was virtually eliminated. Between August 24th and September 4th, the German serviceability rates, which were acceptable at Stuka units, were running at 75% with BF-109s, 70% with bombers, and 65% with BF-110s, indicating a severe shortage of spare parts. All units were well below established strength. The attrition was beginning to affect the fighters in particular. By September 14th, the Luftwaffe's BF-109 possessed only 67% of their operational crews against authorized aircraft. Due to the failure of the Luftwaffe to establish air supremacy, a conference assembled on September 14th at Hitler's headquarters. Hitler concluded that air superiority had not yet been established and promised to review the situation. Three days later, when the evidence was clear that the German Air Force had greatly exaggerated the extent of their successes against the RAF, Hitler postponed Sea Lion, the actual invasion, indefinitely. The bombing would continue until May of 1941, just prior to Germany's attack on Russia. The debate still rages among Battle of Britain historians as to whether or not Britain would have collapsed had the fighter wars continued. But Goering changed his strategy and ended daytime raids and bombings and switched to nighttime. British fighters were there at night, but not as effective at nighttime. So German bombers could pretty much bomb with impunity. And that's what they did. From September through December of 1940, turning most major cities in England into fiery maelstroms. The deaths and terror suffered by innocent civilians has never been forgotten. It should be stressed that the bombing didn't stop after December 29, 1940. It just slowed down for two glorious winter months in January and February of 1941. Here the weather turned sour and unfriendly to bombers, but finally the British people were given some time to breathe and recoup. For those who had lost their homes and were forced to live in shelters, there was probably no difference in their lives, which must have been miserable beyond compare. For all civilians, it had been months since anyone had even seen an orange or a banana. These may sound like trivial things, but those small things of life became very important when they're missed for a long time. As the story goes, a wealthy woman in Hampshire came back from driving an ambulance and found a note that her charwoman, who also did her shopping, had left for her. It read, Dear Madam, there is no honey, no sultanas, currants or raisins, no mixed fruits, nor sugar, nor saccharin, nor spaghetti, nor sage, nor herrings, kippers or sprats, smoked or plain, no matches, 
"'No kindling wood, or dipping, "'no can of celery or tomato soup, or salmon. "'I have bought three pounds of parsnips.' "'In many homes there was no or little heat, "'and signs of bombing, at least in the cities, "'lay all around. "'On February 9, 1941, "'Churchill decided to give them all a jolt "'and warned of an imminent invasion.' and you can certainly debate as to how needed that false flag was, as no invasion ever came. But in early March, the bombing began again, when bombs started falling on the shipbuilding towns of Clydesbank, south of Glasgow. All but seven of its 12,000 houses were damaged. That's how flattened it was. Its survivors had to flee into the nearby moors. Bristol, Cardiff, Portsmouth, and Plymouth were blitzed repeatedly after that. On March 19, 1941, London took its worst beating ever. 750 civilians were killed. Bombs rained on Hull, Newcastle, and Liverpool. In late April 1941, over 2,000 more civilians were killed by German bombing. So now it marked nearly a year of the German bombing of Britain. Many of the books and reports you read only seem to indicate a few months of bombing in 1940, but not so. Germans bombed Britain for a year, throughout 1940 and 1941. By early May of 1941, secret orders were given to the Luftwaffe to move operations to prepare for Operation Barbarossa, the attack on Russia, beginning with the decimation of Czechoslovakia and Poland. When the Allies joined the RAF in the bombing of German cities in 1942, they targeted and firebombed Dresden, Hamburg, and other German cities. Many post-war debates over the morality of these bombings raged, and no wonder, considering all the fiery death and destruction that Hitler's minions dealt out to half the civilized world. But the question left is, is retribution forgiven when it falls on innocent people? That's a tough one to answer. Propaganda was an important element of the air war which began to develop over Britain from June 18, 1940 onwards, when the Luftwaffe began small, probing daylight raids to test RAF defenses. One of the many examples of these small-scale raids was the destruction of a school at Pool Run in Cornwall by a single raider. Into early July, the British media's focus on the air battles increased steadily, the press, magazines, BBC radio, and newsreels daily conveying the contents of Air Ministry communiques. The place of the Battle of Britain in British popular memory partly stems from the Air Ministry's successful propaganda campaign in July through October of 1940, and its heroic portrayal of the defending pilots from March of 1941 onwards. The 3D pamphlet, The Battle of Britain, sold in huge numbers internationally, leading even Goebbels to admire its propaganda value. Focusing only upon the fighter pilots, with no mention of RAF bomber attacks against invasion barges, the Battle of Britain was soon established as a major victory for fighter command. This inspired feature films, books, magazines, works of art, poetry, radio plays, and short films. The Battle of Britain window in Westminster Abbey was also encouraged by the Air Ministry, Lords Trenchard and Dowding, on its committee. The stained-glass window created by Hugh Easton contains the badges of the fighter squadrons that took part in the battle. In four panels are shown visions which symbolize the redemption. In one, a squadron leader kneels before the Virgin Mary and the Christ child. Below this, she is represented in her sorrow with the dead Christ across her knees. 
a symbol of the sacrifice of the mothers and widows of those who died in the conflict. On the opposite side of the panel shows a sergeant pilot kneeling before the crucifixion. According to all I've read, it's beautifully done and worthwhile seeing if you're ever in London. The Battle of Britain was unique in that it marked the first major defeat of Germany's military forces, with air superiority seen as the key to victory. Pre-war theories had led to exaggerated fears of strategic bombing, and the UK public opinion was buoyed by coming through the ordeal. For the RAF, Fighter Command had achieved a great victory in successfully carrying out Sir Thomas Inskip's 1937 air policy of preventing the Germans from knocking Britain out of the war. The controversy rages as to whether or not Hitler could have invaded Britain had he not been so focused on Russia. And these two following excerpts, I believe, provide the best answers. Richard Evans writes, Irrespective of whether Hitler was really set on this course, he simply lacked the resources to establish the air superiority that was the prerequisite of a successful crossing of the English Channel. A third of the initial strength of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, had been lost in the Western Campaign in the spring. The Germans lacked the trained pilots, the effective fighter aircraft, and the heavy bombers that would have been needed. The Germans launched some spectacular attacks against important British industries, but they could not destroy the British industrial potential and made little systematic effort to do so. Hindsight does not disguise the fact the threat to fighter command was very real, and for the participants... It seemed as if there was a narrow margin between victory and defeat. Nevertheless, even if the German attacks on the 11 Group airfields which guarded southeast England and the approaches to London had continued, the RAF could have withdrawn to the Midlands out of German fighter range and continued the battle from there. The victory was as much psychological as physical. Writes Alfred Price, the truth of the matter, borne out by the events of August 18th, is more prosaic. Neither by attacking the airfields, nor by attacking London, was the Luftwaffe likely to destroy fighter command. Given the size of the British fighter force and the general high quality of its equipment, training, and morale, the Luftwaffe could have achieved no more than a Pyrrhic victory. During the action on August 18th, it had cost the Luftwaffe Five trained air crew killed, wounded, or taken prisoner for each British fighter pilot killed or wounded. The ratio was similar on other days in the battle. And this ratio of five to one was very close to that between the number of German air crew involved in the battle and those in fighter command. In other words, the two sides were suffering almost the same losses in trained air crew in proportion to their overall strengths. In the Battle of Britain, for the first time during the Second World War, the German war machine had set itself a major task which it patently failed to achieve, and so demonstrated that it was not invincible. In stiffening the resolve of those determined to resist Hitler, the battle was an important turning point in the conflict of World War II. The British victory in the Battle of Britain was achieved at a heavy cost. Total British civilian losses from July through December of 1940 alone, were 23,000 dead and 32,000 wounded, with one of the largest single raids on December 19, 1940, in which almost 3,000 civilians died. With the culmination of the concentrated daylight raids, Britain was able to rebuild its military forces 
and established itself as an Allied stronghold, later serving as a base from which the liberation of Western Europe was launched. How true it was Britain from which D-Day was launched, something very powerful to remember. It would not have happened had Britain been lost. I ask all of you to consider again when or what the outcome of World War II would have been were it not for Britain's gameness in the face of what was then the world's most terrifying military power. Winston Churchill summed up the battle with the words, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Pilots who fought in the battle have been known as the few ever since, at times being specially commemorated on September 15th, Battle of Britain Day. On this day in 1940, the Luftwaffe embarked on their largest bombing attack yet, forcing the engagement of the entirely forcing the engagement of the entirety of the RAF in defense of London and the southeast, which resulted in a decisive British victory that proved to mark a turning point in Britain's favor. The great air battle, which has been in progress over this island for the last few weeks, has recently attained a high intensity. It is too soon to attempt to assign limits either to its scale or to its duration. We must certainly expect that greater efforts will be made by the enemy than any he has put forth. Hostile airfields are still being developed in France and the Low Countries, and the movement of squadrons and material for attacking us is still proceeding. It is quite plain, sir, that Herr Hitler could not admit defeat in his air attack on Great Britain without sustaining most serious injury. If, after all his boastings and blood-curdling threats and lurid accounts trumpeted round the world of the damage he has inflicted, of the vast numbers of our air force he has shot down, so he says, with so little loss to himself, if after tales of the panic-stricken British crushed in their holes, cursing the plutocratic parliament which has led them to such a plight, if after all this, his whole air onslaught were forced, after a while, tamely to peter out. The Führer's reputation for veracity of statement might be seriously impugned. We may be sure, therefore, that he will continue, as long as he has the strength to do so, and as long as any preoccupations he may have in respect of the Russian Air Force allow him to do so. On the other hand, the conditions and course of the fighting have so far been favorable to us. I told the House two months ago that whereas in France our fighter aircraft were wont to inflict a loss of two or three to one upon the Germans, and in the fighting at Dunkirk, which was a kind of no man's land, a loss of about three or four to one, we expected that in an attack on this island we should achieve a larger ratio. This had certainly come true. It must also be remembered that all the enemy machines and pilots which are shot down over our island or over the seas which surround it are either destroyed or captured. Whereas a considerable proportion of our machines and also of our pilots are saved and soon again in many cases come into action. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, 
except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen, who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Thank you very much, listeners, for being with us to share this history and the story of these heroes who fought in defense of freedom, the same freedoms we enjoy today and are still being fought for in many ways and in many places around the world. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always appreciate reviews. So if you're an Apple listener and you can take a few extra minutes, please send us your appreciation with a good review. Good reviews help new listeners decide to give us a try. Our Patreon supporters also support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where for about the price of a cup of blended coffee every month, our Patreon supporters are helping us to move forward from 1001 Stories to 2001 Stories. We thank you so much for your support, and we'll be back next Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.